folks. Welcome to Two Feet Apart with me, your host, Peachy Patrick. Two Feet Apart is a space for individuals to learn that language matters, that words mean things, that to embrace diversity means to practice inclusivity within the LGBTQ plus Indigenous, people of color, and Black communities. To embrace diversity means to provide accessible practices for those who possess visible and invisible disabilities. It's a space to place egos in the crevices of our beings in hopes of broadening mental horizons to foster growth. It's a space to fuel mindfulness. It's a space to emulate vulnerability in the sharing of our stories because our stories are our greatest strengths and our strongest powers, our superpowers. With that in mind, happy listening. Uh, For anyone that doesn't know, or I guess people that aren't close friends and family members listening, um, the mystery voice today is actually my younger brother, John. Um, So you probably heard about him in quite a few episodes, especially in season one, when it was a little bit more about my story. Um, But I'm super excited to have you on today because I feel like you have a really interesting story full of like plot twists and kind of out of the box experiences. And I think that it would probably be beneficial for like other people to hear. I think that's great. I'm really excited to share my um, my experiences. Should we give like a little bit of a, a breakdown? Sure. I think that sounds fantastic. Okay. So um, you were born in 2003, which sounds crazy because in my head, I'm like 2000s wasn't that long ago but i recognize that you're like a full adult and that's insane um (laughs) enjoy paying your taxes uh but yeah so there's that um and then obviously you moved with us kind of across the country growing up um and you are white (laughs) Yes. Our older sister and I am not. <laughs> and uh, and you're trans. You're um, a member of the trans community. And you've also survived a pretty intense uh, brain surgery and battle with meningitis. So 2018, so far on the podcast, has only been identified as the year that I was married. Um and kind of in that relationship. Um, I won't add any other describing words out of respect, <laughs> but you know what it is. So let's talk about what 2018 was like for you, because I feel like for everyone in our immediate family, at least, there was so many <laughs> life changes and so much chaos. Mm-hmm. So let's start there at the time you identified how did you identify in terms of gender identity um that was in when i first started high school so i was in grade nine and i identified as female um the sex i was assigned at birth and i was just then starting to explore like my um sexual orientation kind of thing Mm -hmm. so at the time you kind of um, we're trying to sort out 
your gender identity and figure that stuff out and just educating yourself on it. So I think that at the time you more gravitated towards the lesbian community. That's right. Yeah. I, um, in my head when I was younger, I associated masculinity with, um, masculinity as a woman with liking another woman. Mm -hmm. So I had assumed that meant I was a lesbian. Right. (laughs) Um, Which I fully leaned into, and that was not the case. You did. Yeah. (laughs) During this period, um, that's kind of how you identified. And then let's talk about kind of the big life-changing event of, you know, all of a sudden we were getting calls from your school that you were collapsing and having seizures. And it seemed that as time went on, they became more frequent and more intense. Um, And that ultimately led to like, was it even a set diagnosis or was it like, you know, we're going to do this surgery and hope that that's the fix. It was more hope that that's the fix kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So 2018 October is when I started having these seizures and I went to a few um, doctors and pediatricians that had thought it was um, epilepsy, mm-hmm. um, which turned out not to be the case. And then through um, diagnostic imaging, they found out that I had Chiari malformation. Um, so then um, Chiari malformation... Ah, um, But the doctors hadn't believed that that was the origin of the seizures. Mm -hmm. So we continued exploring our options with other neuro... Neuro doctors. Uh, Neurologists. Yeah, I was like, (laughs) what was Derek Shepard? With other neurologists. And one had concluded that he had seen like another case. And although it's rare that Karen malformation... Um, could lead to seizures that it is a possibility and he's seen it before and so with a Arnold Chiari malformation decompression surgery that it say might say that 10 times fast no <laughs> <laughs> that it might um, help with the seizures kind of thing mm-hmm. so and that was a very abrupt thing you know we met him about two weeks prior to the surgery and it was just it was very fast um Yeah. So how did that, you know, I can only imagine kind of conceptualizing that like, hi, nice to meet you. Enjoy seeing the inside of my brain in two weeks. Like, what can you like, do you even remember? Like, I'm sure that there's a flurry of emotions and I'm to some capacity, there's got to be some repression there. But how, like, what was that like for you? Just kind of that waiting process and meeting this individual knowing that you had to put so much trust into them and just kind of having that blind faith? Um, Honestly, it was a little bit frightening knowing that I could go through this five hour surgery and that might not be Mm -hmm. the issue. But at that point, it wasn't really much of like a choice. It was just Um, kind of grasping to. Exactly. Yeah. So um, I don't know. At that point, I wasn't so... um, conscious in my choices since most of it had been you know i was seizing so often it um 
I was just kind of taking it day by day. Right. But it was it was frightening. And um, the team that I was with was absolutely phenomenal. And they did a great job on making sure I was comfortable. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so the brain surgery went well. Um, it was a success, thankfully. Um, but then shortly after you contracted meningitis. Yeah. So the surgery went really well and stopped seizing, which was fantastic. Um, but about two months? No, not even. No, a month and a half? If that. I think it was maybe a month. Yeah. So about so during the surgery, I had contracted bacterial meningitis. Mm-hmm. And then a, roughly a month later, it was diagnosed um, when I was presenting with extreme migraines and neck stiffness, which originally the doctors had thought it was from the surgery kind of thing. So it was never really diagnosed until that like month and a half later. Mm-hmm. Um, but at that point, it had gotten so extreme. It mm-hmm. was... It was intense. It mm-hmm. was ins- I've never... Um, you know, obviously people have chronically ill family members and people that are in, you know, accidents and things like that. And you think that you know, after overcoming all of the um, suffering that you went through with the seizures and then recovering from brain surgery. And now all of a sudden there's this going on and it just seemed like curveball after curveball. And although the surgery went well, like nothing else seemed to really be going in your favor. Um, And that's super hard. And I commend you for it because almost every time that, you know, I sat with you in the hospital, you were in such good spirits and, you know, we'd sit there kind of people watching and poking fun. And, um, there was just still that lighthearted air about you. And you still, you know, asked how I was doing and tried to check in on everyone else. And I thought that was really like, I, I commend that a lot. Um, because that's very respectful to be in that position where, you had all rights to be completely selfish <laughs> and <laughs> demand full attention and full care and want to be babied. And you still, as always, wanted to try and put other people first. Um, but how long did you end up in the hospital for? Um, it always feels longer than it actually was, but I believe it was five to like four or five months. Yeah. About that. that is still a long time. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and what was that like for you? Like, were you able to build any relationships, um, you know, with staff or other patients? Um, and you know, how did that affect your social situation outside of, cause obviously like you're young, you're in high school, that's when you're supposed to be, um, going, I would say going to parties. I didn't do that, but <laughs> most people did. Um, so that's when you're supposed to be going to parties or playing sports, like you played, football and you were on the swim team and stuff like that so like how did that kind of change those dynamics for you um it did in a few ways i actually i found myself pulling away from friends i had made and um other peers like in my social life Mm -hmm. just since i didn't know what was going on and it was too much to handle kind of Mm -hmm. trying to like put up like a front and pretend like that it was okay okay. yeah Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I kind of lost that aspect of my life for a little bit. And since I was in the pediatric um, hospital, mm-hmm. um, a lot of the other um, patients there were around like six, mm-hmm. six and under, um, which was, it was amazing. You know, you'd see these kids who had battled cancer and who are there for blood diffusions like every other week. Mm-hmm. And they just, with a smile on their face and mm-hmm. as they like race through them, like, it's just, it's incredible. Um, and, you know, their parents were always so sweet and, you know, it really helps put things in perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, things like that, that kind of bring people together. Because when you're in those situations, it's like, you know, I'm not here by choice. And I know you're not here by choice. So let's just kind of be kind to each other, because we know that there's more to each other's stories. Whereas, you know, you're sitting in a restaurant, and you don't know if the guy beside you just went through something like that. Um, so it's harder to identify those kind of landmarks in people's lives. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so after you get out of the hospital and I, I would love to say normal life resumes, but obviously it looked a lot different because there comes chronic pain, um, healing, and then obviously trying to kind of manage how you're going to reintegrate back into your social circle. Um, but at this time is also when you came out as trans. Um, so what was kind of the defining moment there where you're like, I need to just come out with it and kind of, I didn't want to use the come out of the closet (laughs) thing, (laughs) but, um, when you were just kind of like, you know, this is a heavy weight and I don't want to bear it by myself anymore. So I want to live freely after this horrible experience. Um, what was, was there a defining moment or was it just kind of like, I'm reclaiming my life? Um, I wouldn't quite say like a defining moment. Honestly, it was something that I had recognized um, from a younger age, Mm -hmm. but never really came to terms with accepting it. Mm -hmm. Um, But after the hospital, I felt that I had lost so much that I couldn't really lose anymore. Mm -hmm. And that it was... um, So then I felt there wasn't really anything more I could lose. And I also wasn't in school, so I didn't have the social impact that I would have had if I was still in high school kind of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I assume not that any of that would have been easy for you. Um, But I assume that the process was a lot... um, simpler to break down when you're able to be like, okay, I know that I only have to address this with family right now. And then I can start opening the conversations with other people on my own terms. It was for sure. And, you know, back then I thought, I was like, you know what, I'll come out and come into my family and that's it. And I'm done. And I, that's out of the way, but really that's never it. I, um, you know, yeah, every time you Like I find I've had to come out so often, whether it's to doctors or mm. um, to friends who have accidentally, who have seen the, um, who had seen my binder through mm-hmm. my shirt kind of thing. Right. And like other things like that. It was just yeah. constant, you know, you, 
Yeah, as if. And so at this point, how old are you? You're like, what, 16? Okay, superhero mm -hmm. status. Um, that is more bravery that some people can say that they've kind of claimed in their entire life. You know, like, I feel like there's some people that, uh, you know, unfortunately feel like they can't be who they want to be and be who they are outwardly. Um, and so, you know, they have to live in that. And so I'm so glad that you were able to find the courage to, to just be who you are and to let us all love and accept you as you are. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> I'm being a supportive sister. Okay. <laughs> um, so what would you say? So out of that, and then also keeping in mind that we didn't grow up near any extended family because we were constantly moving across the country um, and things like that. What would you say are key moments in your life where there those pivot moments like everything has changed now um i would say initially when i came out to you because although and i had come out to i would say mirror i would say <laughs> i had a google mini yeah. and i would be like hey google <laughs> <I'm trans."> <laughs> <laughs> yeah i had to practice but okay. um one of the defining moments definitely was when i had told you you know the first person that i had told and um, another was when I had FaceTimed my grandmother and my grandfather and asked for my Opa's name or my grandfather's name mm -hmm. um, since it's a family tradition kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I'll never forget that moment when my when I told my grandmother and she just started tearing up and I was so scared that she would just cut me out of the, like, mm -hmm. I wouldn't be a part of their life anymore kind of thing. And she was just so joyous mm -hmm. and even my like our opa was so supportive and it was incredible i did not expect it mm -hmm. and i think that like the key thing here is like they're not individuals that you would look at and be like oh they're very judgmental and things like that um they're truly some of the most light-hearted and loving kind individuals that i've ever known um however it's that stereotype that with older generations and being more conservative, um, that things like that aren't as accepted or talked about. And so um, I think it's so beautiful that you were able to carry on that family name tradition um, and that kind of that legacy didn't have to end, um, even though, you know, family traditions are always... Um, you know, there's like the pros and cons. There's the pressure of, do I continue this tradition? And then there's also the side of, you know, but this is my life and I want to kind of have the control over it. Um, is there something that made you decide, like, were you feeling any pressure to take uh, the family name because, um, because of that family history? Or was it just kind of that this is who you are and that's what you want? Honestly, no, not until I came out a few months after I came out to my dad, did I even know that it was a family tradition to carry on the name through every second generation kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, originally I was leaning towards something more similar to my dad name, mm -hmm. um, just for 
ease of transition to mm-hmm. make it easier for like friends and family to kind of grasp that name. Mm-hmm. Um, but after I had found out that it was a generational thing and you know, it was something that my opa had carried on for so long, I just felt like it would be an honor to have that, to be able to carry that name kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I love that for you. Um, is there a component of grief towards who you used to be? Not at all. I mean, you know, sometimes I would say like, like it would just be easier if I never transitioned or if I was just, you know, that cis straight little white girl, you know, um, Mm -hmm. but I don't regret it at all. And uh, what was I going to say? But my, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> but, but my life has improved in so many ways since I had come out. And honestly, I think being socialized as a girl has made me a better man. Mm, I love that. And I, I think you're absolutely right because you have kind of the insight, you understand. Um, and just because you, yeah, you've experienced a lot of the struggles um, that people that are born and identify as women struggle with. Um, So to have that insight, I think, makes you a lot more emotionally mature um, than a lot of men and still makes you a really great friend. (laughs) I always say, like, you know, there's, like, siblings that you're like, oh, we're just siblings. And then there's siblings that you're like, oh, we're homies, homies, you know? Um, you're a homie. (laughs) So this episode is actually going to be structured a little differently. Um, this is a bonus episode. So for this one, um, if you stay tuned to the end, we actually have Elizabeth Westlow discussing the power of poetry and the written word through mental health struggles. Um, and I think that's a really essential conversation that needs to be had because um, everyone has such different experiences with these struggles. Um, And it's just very powerful to hear everyone's story because there's so much courage um, that comes through finding that passion and figuring out, you know, what is my purpose and how am I going to navigate these challenges that I face? Um, But before that, I have convinced John that we should do a question round. And I did want this to be an opportunity to help educate people on the trans community um, and some of the other things that I think aren't spoken of enough because, you know, even as I was saying previously and off to the side, just that. I hope that this podcast becomes a landing place for people that are searching for stories that resonate with them. Um, Because there's many times in my life where I felt so isolated and alone. And it was so much as someone that I barely knew saying, hey, I had the same experience for me to like, it felt like a warm hug on a really cold day. Like it was like, I needed that more than anyone would have known. Um, So I hope that that's what two feet apart becomes to someone listening. So first question, 
we've established your weight. (laughs) (laughs) So I have shared in quite a few episodes what my experience was um, growing up with a white sibling, a mixed sibling that's much lighter than I am, and white parents. Um, But what was it like for you? Like, although you had, you know, the white parents, both of your older siblings were women of color. Um, So what was that experience like for you? Honestly, when I was younger, um, I, it took me forever. And when our dad had told us, or had told me, I was so caught off guard. And (laughs) I think I was nine or 10. Mm -hmm. It's no idea. Um, but you just thought that you weren't left in the sun long enough or felt the The chocolate milk Nesquik is running out. It's running out. (laughs) Um, yeah. So honestly, it took me by surprise and, you know, I never knew that we had family outside of, um, our home, our home kind of thing, essentially. And, um, but it really opened up a lot of doors for me personally, as you know, it educated me on a lot of the struggles that you face as a woman of color that I wouldn't have been exposed to mm-hmm. as you know, a white kid growing up with white parents kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you ever feel isolated or... I would like to say like an outlier, but y'all still outnumbered us. Um, But did you ever feel like, oh, I'm the different one? Because I know I felt like that. And so I just think, wouldn't it be coincidental if we're both sitting here like, oh, that was my experience too? I did, for sure. I, um, you know, and for different reasons. I mean, I would see all these kids coming to school with, with their siblings and they would look identical mm-hmm. and I'd be so jealous. It boggles like, my mind sometimes. I'm like, Oh my insane. God. And then I'm like, wait, that's, <laughs> it's pretty common. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I was so jealous of the bond that, you know, those kids would have. And then, um, and you know, growing up, it always seemed that you and our older sister had this bond and, you know, we're so close and I felt that, Maybe it was because how I looked, how we looked, and how we were different. (laughs) Get out. You're done. (laughs) You can't kick me Um, off my own podcast. I can't. Um, But I thought maybe it was because our differences that Mm -hmm. we hadn't grown up when we were younger as close. Mm -hmm. But as I aged, I kind of realized that that was not the case at all. Mm-hmm. And it was simply like it was more just an age difference kind of thing. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I found that for me, I was a lot closer to our older sister when she had freedom. And so when she could be like, oh, we can go here together or, oh, I can get you the, these treats <laughs> and hook you up with this and whatever. Not like drugs or anything, but <laughs> um, chocolate bars to be specific. <laughs> but um Yeah. And then I found that when the pivotal moment when we became a lot closer was when I got that freedom and I was like, Hey, you want to come on a drive to Toronto for no reason? Because I want pancakes like, and just 
you know, that kind of opened, you want to go to the beach at 2 a.m. just just because I want to wake up to angry texts from my mom um, <laughs> and things like that. And so I think that that was really essential because um, especially growing up a lot and not having the chance to really explore those communities um, when we finally were able to and kind of have that taste of independence, um, it brought us a lot more into who we are. And then we are a lot more comfortable opening up those connections with other people. I agree. I um, I would say both of us, when we reached that age, had a lot more freedom of expression. And we're able to do more things that made us happy and explore mm-hmm. who we are as people. Mm-hmm. And I think we were both in therapy. <laughs> yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes we were. helps. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Mm. So... Yeah, I I always wondered about that. And there was also, you know, that period when, so obviously um, from when I was young, I knew that I was Black. (laughs) (laughs) I was in denial for a while. We had talked about that in previous episodes. Um, But I think the struggle for me was it felt like that part of my identity was missing. Um, Because especially like I look at you and as we discussed um, with our OPA and outside of the family, like there's so much family history and it's all documented and recorded and we're told those stories. And I found that it was just kind of that dead end road for me. And I am staring at the destination where I want to be, but there's, there's zero way to get there. Um, and so there were periods where I just kind of really, really tried to immerse myself in black culture. Um, And, you know, I know that that was hard at points for our parents, even, um, because they felt like I was almost rejecting the other side of me when it was really just kind of desperation to have answers um, to the Black side of me. So I'm wondering if during those periods at all that, like, obviously, that would affect you at some capacity, but I'm wondering kind of how you interpreted those times, because for me, it wasn't like, it was a a really hard time and I wasn't really in my body. Like I wasn't who I am. It was more just, you know, when you're hyper-focused, like this is an extreme example, (laughs) but when you see like those mad scientists that go crazy trying to figure out one exact solution and then they just kind of lose their mind and everyone's like, who are you, dude? I felt like that was me trying to figure out like how black am I? You know, what is being black? How am I supposed to talk and dress and how can other people perceive me as black so that I feel like I can identify as that? Because that's already how I'm being identified when I go in public, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there was definitely a period where, you know, you were... Trotting into shikis? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um... Which, you know, I I loved. I love that you were, you know, looking into your culture and finding your roots. Mm-hmm. And I don't think at that age I ever really knew that it was like mm-hmm. tied closer to your roots. Um... Yeah, you didn't really know that it was out of me seeking those answers as desperately as I was. For sure, yeah. And, um, 
you know, and I, I loved that you were doing that. Um, at times it did feel, you know, like I knew you were invested in something, but I wasn't sure, you know, what exactly mm-hmm. it was that you had just been so almost lost in. Mm-hmm. And I think like some of the defining moments for me in that journey were, you know, when I went to my biological father's grave and when I met siblings on the other side. Um, and I think that that really brought me more into who I am um, because then I was able to not even close those chapters, but continue learning and move on from that fixation and just kind of feel that sense of resolution that had been open through my childhood. Um, and I think one of the most beautiful things about that entire experience, which I wish was spoken about more was the power of um, family because I have so many siblings and I don't really see, like there's a couple of them that, you know, I haven't met that live in Africa and we kind of talked about that on the show before, but um, I don't really see the rest as half siblings. Like I would never refer to you as a half sibling or our older sister or the siblings that I met later in life. Like, um, because it's this really cheesy, but there's like a full heart of love there, you know? (laughs) And so, um, one of the most beautiful things is that they have become genuinely integrated parts of our family. Um, Mm -hmm. and so their mom, I love dearly. Um, and you know, they love our family as if, you know, as if that blood didn't make a difference. Um, and so I think it's beautiful that, you know, you have that connection with them as well. Um, and, you know, even when I lived out West, uh, with my one sister, you know, you would be hanging out with Michael, our Mm. brother, um, and things like that. And it just, I think it's so beautiful that, um, like there's really not that limit on who is considered family and what makes family. It's that the fact that it was a choice, um, but that it's held us all together so strongly. Um, it's been really impactful. And so I wish that that was more spoken about because the concept of half siblings was so foreign to me. And so I felt so much shame and guilt and, you know, I wouldn't really admit it to people, but then it's kind of obvious when they come over to two white parents and a white younger brother <laughs> that somewhere <laughs> there was either a mailman There's... or something was in the picture that is not adding up. Um, and so I, I did, I felt a lot of like guilt and shame and embarrassment because it was just never talked about and it was just a foreign concept and it wasn't shame or anything towards our family specifically. It was just that I didn't know how to explain it to people in the way that did it justice. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't like a half sibling makes it any lesser. It's not like if I had half an Oreo and I'd be kind of mad that I'm missing the other half of it. It was, it's literally just the slight technicality, Mm -hmm. but everything else compensates so much for that. So one of the things that you had mentioned previously um, that I think is really important to touch on is 
how you navigate the medical community as a trans individual. Um, so I want to know kind of what those experiences are like, um, you know, in terms of disclosure versus what's already on your file. And, you know, are these providers doing due diligence? Oh my gosh, <laughs> due diligence to ensure that um, their practices are inclusive and that you feel seen and treated as you should. Honestly, I mean, all medical fields has its up and downs and diversity mm -hmm. kind of thing. I find, you know, every time I had to switch a doctor or you know, saw a new doctor, I would always have to come out, mm -hmm. um, which most of which have been really fantastic experiences. But then there's those negative experiences that kind of just stick in the back of your mind and mm -hmm. stay as like a what if, um, you know, what if the next medical professional is like this, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, you know, not that long ago, I went to donate blood. And typically, I don't disclose that I'm trans. Mm -hmm. um, but I remember the the worker there had asked um, why it was I was taking testosterone. Um, to which then I replied, it was because I was trans. Um, I had donated blood a few times before that, mm -hmm. and so on file, it was always it was always read as male male <laughs> it was always read as male mm -hmm. and you know then i was just i was sitting there and i felt so alone and wrong you know like just mm -hmm. like there was something about me that wasn't right and as she took out this massive book and tried to look for the right procedure to do mm -hmm. um, you know kind of their policies handbook exactly um and then so and that took approximately like 20 20 minutes for her to sort out that's uncomfortable and then yeah <laughs> and then um after that since um i hadn't had bottom surgery they clarified that they needed to change my profile back to female which at the time just felt so awful like i wasn't trans and you weren't valid i were valid yeah yeah and, um, and, you know, I understand that that's procedure, but, um, you know, it's just always those small negative experiences that kind of stick with you. Absolutely. But I mean, yeah, I, I always tend to take more caution when I'm by myself in a medical situation, mm -hmm. just because I don't know how the individual is going to respond. Right. But I find majority of the time they are good experiences. That's good. And mm -hmm. I think it helps that, um, you know, there's a lot of criticism towards social media, but I think that it allows us to have those conversations and educate ourselves in private because a lot of mm -hmm. people are not always willing to admit that they don't know something or that they're wrong in a face-to-face -face conversation. But I think that it's much easier when they open up Instagram and someone shares a story like yours um, and they're able to kind of understand and have the opportunity to learn more and ask questions in the space that they feel, um, you know, everyone always feels a little better when they're behind a screen, you know, mm -hmm. um, it applies to more than just trolls. 
I think that it's been really beneficial that way. And, you know, it took everything with George Floyd for companies to be more inclusive towards people of color. And even then, there's still so much work to go for people of color in the Black community. And I think that that progression and kind of being aware that there's so much improvement needs to be made is slowly, very, very slowly starting to creep into the queer community and the LGBTQ plus community. Mm -hmm. And so I hope that that doesn't have to be other people's experiences too. And I thank you for sharing that. Another one of my questions um, that you had mentioned is that you had to disclose that you take testosterone. Mm -hmm. And so I know that kind of the process of transitioning is hard for a lot of people, you know, taking hormone blockers, and um and top surgery and needing to have testosterone injections um and that is something else that i also commend you for because once a week you have to sit down and jab yourself with a needle or let me yeah, <laughs> and uh and i'm sure at some point it just becomes like such a big thing in your head, because although it's something that between the brain surgery and that is done so often, it's still, it becomes like an accumulated, you know, it's associated with so many hard times and you had to fight for this and you had to have a lot of courage to get to this point. Um, and so, you know, between all of those processes, kind of what, what would you change or what would you say is, kind of the best route to go like not changes in wouldn't take testosterone Mm -hmm. um but you know there's multiple options for how you take it and you know binding and so can you provide a little more education in not the steps of transitioning but what that process could look like for different people you know honestly i really wish that i came out younger Mm -hmm. just because when i had came out i was at one of the worst parts of my life because that was just when I was, you know, I felt like breaking down every day. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that, you know, as soon as I come out, I'd be able to get that medical help in transitioning. But it was such a long process that I had not accept, or accepted, that I had not expected. And, you know, when I had came out, there really wasn't too much online about safe binding or about mm-hmm. you know, safe trans practices. Exactly. And so I found myself, you know, I would use two, three binders at a time and my back would be in so much pain and my ribs would be bruised. And, and I didn't know that, you know, if you, like if I had continued binding like that and caused harm to my breast tissue, essentially, that it might not have been safe to have top surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, but in my mind then, it was just, I'm going to do whatever I can to try and eliminate this feeling of dysphoria. I think that's really important because um, even after all this and the amount I've tried to educate myself, I didn't even know that, like I understood that wearing the binders, you know, caused the bruising and I saw that and I saw the pain and everything like that. But I didn't know that, you know, it could risk your chance of having top surgery and things like that. Are there anything, like, does anything else kind of come to mind that you're like, I wish I would have known that during that process? 
just for like tissue and rib damage. But, you know, once again, it was whatever that would eliminate that feeling of dysphoria was mm-hmm. what I would go, what I would go with. And, you know, there's so many sites that offer discrete packaging and free binders. Mm-hmm. And I really wish I knew about that sooner since, although I came out as trans, I was so ashamed to medically transition as I didn't feel that my parents or anyone really accepted it. And it was more of something that was tolerated. Mm-hmm. But honestly, one of the things that helped me the most was looking through um, and reaching out to other trans people through social media. Mm-hmm. For instance, I th- one of the most impactful people in my transition has been Skylar Baylor. Uh, it's Pink Manta Ray on mm-hmm. Instagram. I think that's his, his handle. But... Um, you know, I had reached out to him multiple times looking for advice and looking for you know, what to do. And every time he responded, mm-hmm. it was just, yeah. He even responded to me. He did, yeah. Because <laughs> I remember messaging him and I was like, hey, uh, it's my brother's birthday and he loves you. So could you like send him a little message? And he was like, absolutely, no problem, whatever. And I was like, oh my God, I love you. <laughs> And and then you were like, oh my gosh, can you message me? And I was just sitting there kind of with this smirk, like mom's on Christmas. Like, yeah, I did that. <laughs> um, but definitely an incredible human being. And mm, I... He really is. Yeah. And I love um, individuals that recognize the struggle and don't want other people to go through it. They're like, let me help you to my capacity. Um, and I think that you do that. For people even if you don't always realize it um so thank you even though you don't do that for me uh, <laughs> well i mean you do but not for trans things fair enough yeah another thing that i find that people really have a hard time navigating is uh terminology in terms of trans identities um and so i one of the things that you had pointed out to me and i had read it online and i you know kind of had it in the back of my mind and then you had kind of pointed out the prominence of it is that you know i had you reviewing an online form um for me and it said preferred pronouns and you pointed out like it's not a preference that's their pronouns and i'm like Mm -hmm. right but for the longest time that was everywhere Mm-hmm. What are your preferred pronouns? Like constantly. Um, and so I, I still see that every so often. And I think that's one of the things that people don't always talk about. Um, so in terms of that and, you know, referencing your life pre, pre-transition, you know, which, which pronouns do you use to kind of make those references and how do you refer to yourself Um then and you know if there's any other terminology that you think could be beneficial so you know previously i was so unsure on how to navigate my past before transitioning Mm -hmm. and you know how to refer myself in past tense but recently i've come to recognize that i've always been john i've Mm -hmm. always been a guy i've always been me Mm -hmm. and you know that pronouns and my name that didn't change anything didn't change who i am you know, right um, i'm still that person mm-hmm. 
but and with the preferred pronouns thing i definitely think that it is very impactful you know and i think it's great that people are now like starting to ask like what are your preferred pronouns just to be more courteous and create like, a more inclusive space exactly mm-hmm. um but you know that is an issue with terminology is it gets so lost in communication right that like you know you come to realize that these like that's not my preference these are my pronouns and mm-hmm. you know there's point blank point blank exactly mm-hmm. i am so glad that you're open with sharing and educating other people on that because a lot of the time it's easier to be like that's not my job that's not my responsibility and honestly i've taken that route many times because you know i find people in my dms trying to have debates on racial issues with me and i have to sometimes you know i will educate people to the best of my capacity but then there becomes a point where i'm like this is not my responsibility you have a little device in your hand that you can learn literally (laughs) anything you can look up any people would be so powerful if they actually took advantage of the technology they had access to. But instead, we share cat memes and debate with random people. And so I think that, you know, sometimes people have to stop and be like, wait, can I Google that? Mm-hmm. And just Google it. Um, but there's also the power in having the discussion and being able to kind of understand why from another person. Mm-hmm. And I definitely do think that it's, it is important to educate other people, even though it's not, you know, that specific person's responsibility. And I really applaud those that take the time to mm-hmm. do so. Um, but there's definitely a line to be drawn on educating others, um, especially at your own. Like it's a matter of boundaries. And one thing I always say is like, I'm not about to let anyone stress me out on my phone. Mm-hmm. I can turn this thing off and continue with my life. I can close an app and mm-hmm. be done with this conversation. Um, and so not to kind of um, lower the impact of those conversations, but just understand that like, you know, if it's starting to negatively affect me, it doesn't have to, then it becomes a choice. Like sure. I'm still engaging in this. That's when I recognize like, Hey, I can just let it go. Like, I don't have Mm -hmm. to be the savior. I don't have to, you know, have that complex that I need to fix everybody. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's an important boundary to learn, um, which is really hard when a lot of kind of our generation was raised around people pleasing. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, I find that some people feel just so entitled to Mm. your body and to like as a trans individual uh, you know you'll have people coming up to you and asking you know what's in your pants and Mm. would you ask that to your regular cis friends no well maybe depending on my man (laughs) (laughs) kidding but um you know before transition you never had people asking if i've had any surgeries or Mm -hmm. um, what genitalia do I have or asking to see me without my shirt on kind of thing. Right. So, um, and I'm sure you've 
probably experienced quite a bit of people feeling entitled to knowing your heritage and knowing mm-hmm. you know, all that. It's mm-hmm. even like in a completely different capacity, but mm-hmm. feeling entitled to my body and exactly. things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, like you said, it's important to recognize that nobody's entitled to that information just because you identify differently than they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, things like that don't matter because similar to referencing your childhood, like that doesn't change who you are. And so, you know, people will sometimes say, well, you know, if they don't have that part, then whatever. And I'm like, that's not, I can buy one. I can buy you know, like yeah. I can, there's a store that's open 24 hours, 24 seven. They have some pretty funky colors that that's can do true. a lot more than yours. <laughs> and I can just buy one. Mm-hmm. So, so now what's the argument? <laughs> you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so thank you for kind of that reminder, because I think entitlement was one of the words I really focused on in like 2020 um, mm. with the whole like this head of the black lives matter coming out Mm -hmm. um and just kind of i'm like what are people entitled to um because of course i become everyone's token black friend and they want me to educate them and everything like that but with everything going on culturally and in the social situations it was just too much like it was way beyond my capacity and i had to recognize that like they i'm not entitled to answer them Um, and Um, they're not even entitled to an apology about it. And that's applicable to the trans community as well. mm -hmm. No, that's fair. And, you know, then I really applaud you for how you took care of yourself during that time, because that I can't even imagine how that would have been. And I'm just incredibly proud of you. I'm proud of you. (laughs) You can't keep saying that. Um, Yeah, it's just, I'm proud of us. How's that? You know what better? better. Much better. Mm -hmm. Okay, sounds good. As you know, because uh, I've had you kind of help edit podcasts (laughs) and I talk about them with you all the time when I'm done recording. Um, But what is... So this is going to be a two-parter. Okay. First part, do you have any words of support or encouragement for people that are trans and either don't know if they want to tell other people or those people that are looking for that extra validation? I don't know. I mean, I would say it is always important to reach out to your community and... You know, find that safe space for yourself. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always have to be where you think it is. Of course, yes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not always the most ideal of places, but mm-hmm. it's important to find. And really, you'll find that the community ranges from all ages. And when I came out, I was, I believe I was 14. Right? Um, Maybe 15. You came out in 2019. That... 15 yeah, yeah. Uh, and at that age i thought you know i i never recognized any of these signs when i was younger maybe i'm faking it maybe it's a phase and it took a while for me to recognize that it wasn't and that it's completely valid 
no matter what age you are, to realize who you actually are and how you identify. And to step into that. Exactly. It's never too late or too early to begin exploring that part of you. Mm-hmm. And then my token question for every episode is um, what part of your story do you want other people to hear? To recognize how scary uncertainty can be and not be afraid to lean into that. Um, You know, my best and most beneficial experiences have been from when I wasn't sure if this was going to be the worst or best decision of my life. And, Relatable. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, leaning into that, I found there is so much support and so much love in the people that I know. And even beyond that, like in the community itself, mm-hmm. it was just such a realization that I think is so important. I agree with everything um, that you've said. And I think that this episode hopefully was really insightful for a lot of people and really powerful and uh i love you for joining me well i love you otherwise as well (laughs) but i love you extra oh well anytime i'm really glad that i was able to be a part of what you enjoy for the bonus part of the bonus episode here is a conversation with poet and author elizabeth weslow as we talk a little bit about her experiences within the mental health community and how writing and poetry was able to help give that guiding hand and pull her out of a dark place so elizabeth why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself um, I'm from Mississauga and I'm a writer. I have three books currently up on Amazon. Um, they're called chat books, which are a collection of poems. One of them is called what if we are the reflection and it's uh, written about the struggles I have faced in regards to my mental illness. The other two are collection of love poems um, and poems written about my emotional struggles in regards to people that I have interacted with in my life. And um, I think all together, the, the three books really uh, explain to others how I have um, overcome the things that I have struggled with over the years. That's incredible. Um, That must take a lot of courage to like have that vulnerability and be open um, so publicly about all of that. Yeah, this is, um, I think it's time for me to uh, try to get people to see um, what has gone on in my life because I have a really different story, I think, than a lot of people. So from the age of 12 is when... um, I first started with psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. Um, That's when I was diagnosed with attention deficit disorder. Mm -hmm. And that um, I was placed on medication. And then from there, it just um, went into years and years of doctors and medications and diagnoses, anywhere from anorexia, bulimia, depression. And then when I got into university, it got pretty serious. 
and um, the diagnoses became much more serious. And then after university, there became hospitalizations and in and out of the hospital with more diagnoses and more medications and more treatments and more therapists. And um, during that whole time, I wrote. Um, what encouraged you to turn all of your writing and your collections into a book and decide to publish it? My friends, um, myself, yeah. I have always dreamed um, of being able to put something together that people could read and that I could share. Something that my sister told me a long time ago was that just put it on paper and it'll be out of your head. Mm-hmm. And I never found that writing a letter to someone or writing out it in a journal was, was cathartic. So I weave poems about what I experience and um, I don't really know why, honestly. It just, I hear them start in my head and I have to get them on paper or I'm feeling the emotion and then I need to put it down. Mm-hmm. And just to get a, get away from it in some way, my life has been all about these books and I just needed to put them together. And even if, even if no one reads them or no one likes them, that's okay because my, I had to, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes you just have to do something to share it, you know? Absolutely. Your story deserves to be heard. I know that there are people struggling with their mental health. And I mean, I, I, I would love to come out and tell you the diagnosis but the, or the diagnoses, because I would love to be open like that. But the problem is, is there's been so many and the doctors are so uncertain mm-hmm. and they say it's always oh, ever changing and they they'll prescribe this and they'll prescribe that. And you go to them and you say, I really need some help. You know, I'm really struggling with this. Um, And then they blink and then they prescribe Mm -hmm. and then wait, they wait to see what you're going to do, how you're going to react. And a lot of that happened for me while I was in the hospital. And, and, And it wasn't until I finally said, okay, I knew that no one was going to do this, but me. Mm-hmm. And I could no longer depend on the doctors to put my life back together. I could no longer depend on medications. I couldn't depend on my parents, my family, my friends. The only person I could ever get my life back together or could ever do it was me with my faith in God and try to find some way to put it all together so I could live a functional life. So I wrote and then I went back to work. What keeps you going through these times? So the only thing that keeps me going, yes, is my hope and faith in myself and um, the hope that if in some way my writing succeeds, say I succeed and I get past everything, people enjoy my stuff, people like it, like it and they experience what I experience, and together we can all grow, you know, then I think I will have proven myself to myself. And maybe to God as well, because I have one of the things that I've struggled with is my lack of self-worth, my lack of feeling worthy. Now, not necessarily, it's not that I don't have confidence because I do. I have confidence, I have quiet confidence, but my worth 
to a creator is nothing. So that is why I bow. And I struggled so much with um, feeling any type of worthy to whoever or whatever created this land and these, this earth and all of us. Uh-huh. And I feel so small. And I guess that's one of the reasons why I get put in the hospital sometimes is I can't deal with feeling so not worthy, you know? Mm-hmm. I totally, I totally understand that resonates. I find that since having my son, I've been having like this existential crisis. And so I, I get it. It becomes so overwhelming and it becomes something that you're just surrounded in. And then you find it's not necessarily like a negative feeling, but I just understand how overwhelming, um, yeah. that it can yeah, be. Sometimes it's like, um, it's like a weight on my soul and it just drags me it drags me. And sometimes it's so hard to overcome. Right. Absolutely. Um, But that's why, again, I write, I write, I write. That's, that's how, that's how I overcome it. That's the only thing I can do because if I, if I didn't write, I don't think I ever would have got out of the hospital. I'd probably Mm -hmm. still be there. It's amazing what's going on in, in the world and what's going on that people are not aware of. Mm-hmm. And someone's life can look one way, but in reality, it's completely, completely different. And um, I just, I, I, I really feel for people that experience mental health difficulties, um, and even anyone, not even ju- who just doesn't even feel in some type of way worthy. So mm-hmm. I think in a lot of ways, in my years, I've experienced a lot of things that people can really relate to. I hope. I hope. You know, mm-hmm. that's my hope. I'm sure there's it's going to resonate with people out there. Absolutely. I was curious about kind of the behind the scenes. So you've written all this beautiful work. Um, I hope so. You're yeah. sharing your art. And then how did you go from that to having a published book? Oh, well, I published them myself. Yeah. Right. Yes, I did. I, I, I went I typed them up. I created the files and I put them on Amazon. It's so amazing. Easy. Amazing. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. See, yeah. I didn't, I didn't know that you could even do that. You totally can. Yeah. yeah. So I don't even have a contract, right? Yeah. Um, I'm just like a freelance, I guess what's it called? Unsigned hype, right? Like that's what I put as my hash, my hashtag, but um, no, I just, um, I just put them up myself. I don't have a contract. It wasn't, it's it just Amazon just reviews it. Um, and make sure your margins are correct. And then you put it up and hope it sells. Okay. So that's what's happening. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And um, in terms of like your friends and family and stuff like that, how are they like, do you share your writing with them? Are you a little more, do you put those boundaries since it's, it's kind of difficult because it's a combination of like your personal life and your professional mm-hmm. life. Um, mm-hmm. Do you keep boundaries there or do you just kind of let it all well, my, my family, um, my mom just passed away in April, oh, which I'm was really, yeah, we, that was, wow. Um, everyone needs to know whether you have your mom or not, but particularly if you still have your mom, if you think you're appreciating her, you're not, not enough, never, because the minute they're gone, you realize how much you did not appreciate that person, even though you thought you did enough, you didn't ever. So that was hard. 
but my mom couldn't read my work, right? She couldn't, it would make her cry. Mm-hmm. Um, my sister, I'm not certain if she's read my work. I, I left one, a copy of one of my books at her house the other day. My dad's read my books. Um, I'm waiting for copies of what are the, we are the reflection to come in the mail because he ordered them for me because I just put it up a few months ago. Um, and then my, again, my friends, um, I get good feedback from my friends who've read my work. I really do get good feedback. And um, they tell me, keep going and keep Mm -hmm. trying and don't give up. And they tell me to post more. But the problem is, is um, I don't want to hit everybody with all this emotion every day. You know, people don't need to read about this in time for like, I'll give you a couple months to recover from what I said last time or a couple (sighs) weeks. And then we'll talk about this again, you know, because my poems can be very intense. What is something that you would tell your younger self um, with all of the knowledge and experience that you've acquired? Don't be so quick to grow up. You know, I, I always remember I used to lay in my bed and be like, oh, why am I not older? I need to get out of this house. I need to go somewhere. I need to go out. I want to go see people. I want to do something. Why am I not older? I want to be older. I'm only 12. I'm only 13. I'm only 11. Mm-hmm. Why was I so quick to get to where, you know, I, all those years are just gone. Mm-hmm. Why didn't I enjoy where I was? You know, I think that's something very important that I should have told myself or someone that's should have told me. Mm-hmm. That's powerful. As a writer, I'm always curious when people work in the creative space and they deal with creative stuff, um, how would you define art? Anything can be art, right? Mm-hmm. Any form of expression of inner self. That is art, mm-hmm. right? Expression of inner self or creation of something out of nothing, right? Mm-hmm. That's art. That's what I think. Yeah. Any, any, anybody can create art. And anybody who thinks they can't just needs to take a moment, a quiet moment and listen. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they'll find their art there in their heart, you know? They do. Mm-hmm. I love that. What about your story do you think is important for other people to hear? That there's a way out mm-hmm. um, of anything, right? Absolutely. Um, where can our listeners best find or support you? So anybody can go to my website. It's poetrybyelizabeth.com. Um, there's samples there there's links to the books there's links to my Instagram links to my Facebook page thank you so much for joining us today I really appreciate you sharing your story and being vulnerable and courageous Um, you're an incredible and very strong woman and I hope that you keep going yep keep writing right and thank you Petra thank you and thank you two feet apart and thank you for even just letting me come here I really really appreciate you a lot